Page fright is recorded on the traditional unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. back to Page Fright. My name is Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at TheAndrewFrench, and this, of course, is a literary podcast, a podcast where we talk about poems and all things poetry, um, typically books, but not always books, sometimes just individual poems, sometimes just the writing life. There's 70 other episodes, including the one that I did last time with Anique McCaskill that was fantastic, that you can go back and check out if you enjoy this. But let's get into 71. Today we have a returning guest, Manahil Banduquala, is back to talk, folks, about her debut collection. Look, I, I know there's a lot of people putting out debut collections. I know there's a lot of poetry collections coming out seemingly all the time, and it definitely feels that way when you run a podcast that talks about poetry collections that are coming out. However, this one is one that I was so excited to read, and it really lived up to the hype. Um, You can check it out. It's called Monument. We're going to get into it in this episode. We're going to talk about all things poetry. I project, of course, my own fears, hopes, and desires for my poetic life onto Manahill in this interview because that is my trademark style uh, in which I treat every interview like a therapy session, whether you like it or not. And whether I like it or not, it seems to just always end up that way. Regardless, um, was super excited to talk to Manahill. She has been a tremendous friend of the show and somebody who I've really appreciated over the past year or two as I've gotten to know her as a writer and a friend. Um, she's truly a tremendous writer. One of the people who, like, I think when you're a poet, you kind of develop a style and, and a lot of people develop that style further or they stick within that style. Manahil is one of those people who does have a distinct style, but really it can be hard to pin down because she does so many things so well. Um, She's just a tremendous writer, and I really recommend you check out her work, including Monument, her debut collection from Brick Books that we're going to talk about today, but also her chat books that she's done. She's done collective chat books with seven VII in Roman numerals. That's um, a collective out of Ottawa that are fantastic. Um, Conyer Clayton, friend of the show and former guest, is, is a member of that as well. Um, she's done a, a collaborative chapbook with Conyer Clayton as well, and she's also done her own chapbook with Anne Struther, among other various poetic projects, and I'll get into her bio in a second. I'm just saying this to illustrate the fact that there's a lot of Manahill's work out there, and it's really worth checking out. I would really recommend it, regardless. Let's talk about Manahill, because if you don't know who she is, it is my job to inform you before I start talking to her. And uh, before I do that, I just want to say... If you like today's episode, or even if you want to before today's episode, you can go back and listen to another episode with Manahill um, that we recorded, I'm guessing a year ago. I don't have it in front of me, but it was a while ago, um, in which we talked about all things poetry as well. Um, But if you want to stick with this episode, you're welcome to. You're obviously already here. So let's jump into Manahill's bio. Manahil Banduquala is a writer and visual artist originally from Pakistan and now settled in Canada. She works as coordinating editor for ARC Poetry Magazine and is digital content editor for Cantheus. She is a member of Ottawa-based collaborative writing group Seven. Her debut poetry collection is Monument, out now with Brick Books. Check out the link below, folks. 
see her work at manahilbanduquala.com. Here I am chatting with Manahil. Returning to the show, second time I think on the show. Not not three yet, is it? Is it? This is your second time. Yep, this is the second time. Okay, cool. Coming back uh, for the sequel. It's Manahil Banduquala. Manahil, how's it going? It's really good. How are you? I'm really good, and I'm super excited because uh, your book was really cool. Last time you were here, we were talking about I think chapbooks and all sorts of poetic stuff. And now you have a full-length book in the world, and I'm so excited to talk about it. Uh, We're going to get into it. We're going to get into talking about it, and I'm going to ask you some questions, and the whole interview thing's going to go down. But before that, could I get you to read something for us uh, from the book to get us acquainted with it? Uh, Yeah, of course. So the the entire book is one long conversation with Mughal Empress Mumtaz Mahal. um, And most of the book, in most of the book, the I voice is me, Manahil, um, speaking to her, but the poem I'm going to read is from a section called Love Letters, um, and in this, the I is, is Mumtaz Mahal speaking to her husband, um, Emperor Shah Jahan. 1628. On your back, I kissed empire, then smudged it off, tasted dirt on tongue tip. Worms crawl their way out of the holes of my body. You wanted to shape me into empire. Build me an empire. The sound of empire alluring. But empire smelled like charred bodies when you burned out people who would not bend to kiss your knees. When an enemy spit on your crown and bacteria festered on your skin, you felt conquered. Empire with several hundred tons of marble weighed on sick skull. Empire as the last others of thousands of selves aching to drift beyond. I bit the word off your bicep, but you had it tattooed below skin. I could brush it off myself, but you, I could not dust you off. Okay. So, I failed to mention at the start of this episode that Manahil's book is called Monument. It's out now with Brick Books, and that is a poem from it that I really enjoyed so much so that it was one I had flagged. Um, I want to talk about this poem too, but before I get into that, I want to talk about something you said right before you read the poem, which was that this entire book is one conversation. So these poems are very much thematically linked. We're talking about a specific figure from history and a number of narratives around that figure. Um, I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the history behind this book and how you approach that as a writer. Uh, Yeah, so I I started writing this um, because a conversation had emerged with, with someone I was friends with at the time who was from India and she was Hindu and we were talking about the Taj Mahal and she didn't realize that the person who built it was Muslim and that that kind of just sparked me thinking a lot about um the current histories of, of Mus or yeah current histories of Muslim erasure in India that that ha- that are going on um I started researching more into it and thinking more deeply about 
the kind of problematic nature of the Mughal Empire, and there was just there was a lot happening. I wanted I I thought this would just be one poem when I started my research, um, but the more I researched, the more there's just so many complex complex and different things to talk about, and it it just sort of kept going. I I think I started this before I even published a chapbook and I really wasn't thinking about a book at the time. I was just scribbling down down ideas and thoughts and over the years and as I learned more about poetry, read more poetry, it evolved, changed form and now is the book that is monument. Wow. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of work that's gone into this book. Obviously, you can pick up on that as a reader, but it's so interesting that you wrote it over that period of time, too, where you've had these other projects going on, I would guess, simultaneously with, with the writing of this book. Yeah. 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 So how do you balance working on multiple projects? That's a question I want to ask. Um, it, It's quite difficult. Um, Just I find sometimes like when you're in the headspace of a project, it's almost so easy to work on that and then you have these other things that you know you have to work on but you just can't really find that creative spark I think going back to what I said about I wasn't intending on this really being anything I think that helped there wasn't any pressure on it I I could just you know read about read about Nantas Mahal I read a lot about also just creative writing done around like Mughal, the Mughal Empire and the Taj Mahal um, that is reflected in some of the poems in this book and and so that there wasn't any deadline there wasn't any I need to finish this by then when I was coming around to edit this book after I'd submitted the manuscript after it had been accepted that that I found really tricky because I was working on completely different things. It had been um, about a year since I'd, I'd thought about the manuscript and coming back around to it was, was tricky. But what my editor, Cecily Nicholson said, because I brought this up to her, she's like, when when you have to edit it, you, you do have to re-immerse yourself in the world and you'll be able to. I had, I was very nervous about whether I would, but but I was, I, I was able to, and and I think, ultimately, it it panned out. I think this is coming from somebody with less experience with the multiple project thing because I'm very much like tunnel vision. But when I do jump between projects, I feel like it is refreshing almost to come back having thought about something else for a little bit and to then allow these two projects or however many projects you're working on. Because, Manal, you do a lot of writing, so I'm sure there's more than two at times. Um, but however many projects, having them kind of communicate with each other and influence each other too can be a really powerful tool. So it's interesting. I, I think there's a lot to be said for, yes, trying to get back into the headspace of a project, but at the same time, like allowing these things to inform each other to the amount that you want them to. Um, can be really valuable too. And we're talking about multiple projects so early in the show, but I should mention you also have another chat book uh, out now with your sister Nimra. And this is called Encounter. It's out with Rahila's Ghost. You can get it now. I got it now and I read it 
admittedly for the first time this morning <laughs> because it's been a busy couple of weeks, but I really enjoyed it. And it's full of stories and sculptures. So the sculptures are by your sister. You've written the stories and both really inform each other in really cool ways. Um, you have done a lot of collaborative writing in the past. So I imagine this wasn't a huge you know, change for you, but, but how was it working with an artist who works in another mode to create a published project? Yeah, well, so Nimra and I, we both worked on the sculptures together and I'm also a visual artist and that, she's my sister. So a lot of that project came out of the fact that we would like always be making things together as children. Um, and, and although Encounter is published after a lot of the collaborative projects, I think it's one of the the earlier ones. It started before um, my collaborations with, with Seven, um, which is a writing group that I'm part of. Um, yeah, and I think, yeah, it was interesting working, one, like working with a sibling as opposed to kind of another <laughs> another artist. Like there's, yeah, there's there's ways that we just, we, we know each other very well and that works overall works really well, but also creates, creates clashes and tensions. I think that don't always come up when you're working with, um, even if it's a friend, there there is still like that distance that just re- yeah re- really comes up with, with siblings and, and those sibling interactions. Um, and yeah, it was, Encounter specifically was, and in every writing, everything for Reitha Registan, um is interesting because it's not completely for a poetry audience the way a lot of my other writing is. So I was thinking about that a lot and having, um, when Mallory Tater was helping us edit the chapbook, Nimra, she just had all of these, these questions um, that... I think in like in poetry just sort of slip by and you, you just accept as the poetry logic. Um but yeah, like just, just all of these things that ultimately made I feel the poems much stronger. Um so it brings that outside perspective to it. Um Yeah, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> I I don't know if you did either, but <laughs> I did get a lot out of what you said. So we're gonna we're gonna keep moving. Um, okay. But I I always think that's interesting. I honestly I couldn't imagine working on. I have a brother, and I can't imagine working on a chapbook or any sort of length of of collaborative work with him. It would be it would be a lot. So I I'm sure you have to have a very like specific and special connection with your sibling to be able to do something artistic with them. Um, but let's let's jump back to monument because I'm really fascinated by still the the same thing that you said before reading your poem. The entire book is being a conversation, and I imagine it's really difficult um, because you talked a little bit about yourself being a speaker throughout the poem, as well as the figure that's you know being explored. And some of the lines that stood out to me, I wanted to read back to you. There, There's two that made me think a lot about the role of, well, the poet as the speaker in this particular context. So the lines are, here is your story in another language speaking you alive, and I narrate what lingers. So these two lines stuck out to me. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about your role as an author in narrating these stories. 
Yeah, I was really influenced by Soraya Peerby's style poems for girlhood, which I read just before I started working on the initial poems um, or ideas for this collection. Um, in Intel, Peerby sat in on the the trials um, for like the murder of Rina Virk, who was. A, Pun a Punjabi Sikh girl in British Columbia. Um, the details of the book are a bit fuzzy to me now. But in Birbai has a paragraph in her book in which she talks about the importance of how the I in the poems is her, and because she is because of the what she's writing about, it's very important to not have that distance between the the I of the the speaker of the poems and and her. And I think that's something just that's very unique to Monument and from the beginning was something that I wanted to maintain um, throughout the collection. Um, yeah, and I was just I was just thinking about when I was researching, there were bits of facts that I could pick out, um, but I also more so initially was just didn't want to be putting my voice into someone else's um kind of perspective i like, there were questions and speculations and i wanted them to remain that interesting so yeah it, it i think that's something that definitely caught my eye is there there were moments where it, it, it was as if the speaker was kind of blending between yourself and and the figure that's that's you know uh, actually a part of these stories and I was wondering about this because I feel it's difficult I, it, like regardless of writing about a historical figure regardless of considering history but even just writing about my own life I find it really odd that the number the very small number of times where you talk to somebody about your work or when I talk to somebody about my work and they go oh well you know the speaker blah 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 I'm like you can just call them Andrew because for the most part it's just <laughs> Andrew um Obviously, in this case, that's that's not what's going on. But I find it really interesting how in poetry we have this aversion to saying like, oh, the poet is the person who's voicing these poems. And believe me, I'm one of the people who believes in the fact that like the poet doesn't have to be the person voicing the poem. But so often it maybe I'm just projecting from my own work, but it feels like all the time that's what's up. Um, this book is obviously not the case, but in your own poems, um, when you're writing, you know, about your own life, um, you and I have talked a little bit about love poems in the past, for example, and there are love poems in this collection that I want to talk about too. Mm -hmm. But when you're writing like a love poem or something that's directly pulling from your own life, do you feel at times that it's weird if somebody's like, oh, the speaker, blah, 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 as opposed to just, oh, Manal Hill says this and this line or what? You, do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I I kind of like the the distance that's created between the poet and the speaker just because it's like a little bit of a way to hide behind. And I think in love poems, like they're, they're so vulnerable to write. Yeah. <laughs> and... I don't know it's like sitting behind you know my computer or with my notebook I, I can put that vulnerability down but once it's in the world I'm like I, I don't want that to be perceived um and I think even in this book it's very it's very vulnerable to say well like yes this is Menachel I the poet um and I think I think that distance it can be a nice protective measure even if you know there's some details pulled from your own life um I also yeah. often like 
and lately have been enjoying writing a lot more into the speculative and and so it's like okay well these things clearly didn't happen yeah yeah no i i understand that there are environments where like that's totally not the case but i just feel like maybe i think it's just because yeah actually there's no maybe here it's probably because i do a lot of sort of writing from my own perspective and considering like a lot of my writings about like adolescence and growing up Mm -hmm. and identity and stuff that's exploring stuff that's very personal to me i'm like yeah no this is this is about me for the most part i i can't think of many poems i've written where it's from another person's perspective or um like i've probably written more poems i'm i'm just thinking now from the perspective of like objects than other people um (laughs) which i i think is something maybe most poets can relate to i don't know but not the case in this book i don't know (laughs) just 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 to go off that i think review culture is an interesting thing that contributes to that in a lot of ways because i i enjoy reviewing poetry books and it's it's just you're sitting with this book and you're not you're not interacting with the author in any way whereas I think you know on the podcast you can you can ask writers you have that question but with a review there's this distance and you don't want to really make that assumption that the True. poet is writing about themselves and and yeah I think I think it's that that kind of not wanting to make the assumption absolutely and I think like yeah I'm probably wrong for saying I don't know if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of people would disagree, at least, with the fact that, you know, there no, are times when you can just assume uh, so. that, remember, <laughs> that the author's a speaker. But, well, um, I remember, like, Molly Cross yeah. Blanchard, I don't know if it was on this podcast or another one, but she said that, yeah, it's like the poems in her book are are her. And, yeah. Yeah, I I think there are authors where that's just kind of... And Molly's a really good example of that, I think. I don't remember if she said that on here, but I definitely got that um, sort of vibe from her book. And it, I wanted to also just talk a little bit about reviews because you just mentioned them. I know you review poetry books and you've, you've got a lot of uh, work going on, seemingly always, in the poetry community. Um, but I also have started... Well, return to reviewing poetry books. Mm-hmm. I did one review on this podcast like a week ago um, of Jason Purcell's book. And um, I, I definitely felt what you just described as a crucial difference. I sat down for 10 minutes and recorded a quick review. And it was very, very different from sitting down with, for example, you right now, where I can say, well, isn't it the case that, you know, some people feel like they are the speaker in their poems and then you can disagree with me or you can agree with me or we can talk about it. Um, whereas when you're reviewing, this is the thing that I had trouble with. And I think I said this um, at the start of that little review is that I really struggle with taking up space, um, not just as a writer, but as a human being. And I feel like when you're reviewing, you're projecting your own views of something onto that text and claiming them to be correct in, in a lot of cases. And I find that really difficult to be like, here's my opinion and here's why it's right. Because I understand with poetry, especially, there's so many interpretations. So as a reviewer, if you're writing reviews, do you feel like you have to, like, do you feel a little bit more responsibility in writing a review than doing an interview? I I have to be honest, I kind of do. Um, but I oh, wanted to see what you thought of this. 100%. 100%. Okay. I think, you know, reviewing is is exactly that it's like you're in poetry is 
I I don't think it's incorrect to say that it's it's a lot more vulnerable of a medium and even if a poet is not even if the speaker is not the poet there is still a lot of the poet in a work like there's not there's not that same distance that there is with fiction for example or or the yeah reviewing it you don't have things like plot or character or these very clear themes I think to draw from and it's it's so tricky yeah this is this is what I felt is like I I had been toying with the idea of doing these reviews, which I do intend to continue doing because I, it was fun. Um, but I had been toying with the idea of doing these for a really long time just because, you know, I never had the courage to be like, okay, now I'm going to say, I like this book because of this, or, you know, these are the things that I found and hope that people relate to that. Whereas in an interview, like when I'm talking to you right now, I feel a lot more relaxed, probably because I've done 70 of them already, but also because I can be wrong and I can ask you a question and you can tell me I'm wrong and, and that's fine. But in a review, it's like, I feel like I'm asserting myself and saying, this is my opinion and it has to be correct. Even though that's probably not the case, because as a reader of reviews, you can disagree with what a reviewer says. I don't know. I'm rambling. Yeah. Um, let's yeah. <laughs> let's get back to your book. Let's talk more about this. Um, I I really enjoyed this, and it actually reminded me of another book with Brick, um, that came out recently. I spoke to Leah Horlick about her book with mm. Brick, um, a little while ago, Moldovan Hotel, and her book was more of a personal history and exploring personal roots, um, but very much worked in a similar fashion to your book um, in the sense that like, I think like there was still a lot of trying to understand different perspectives and how they factored into the stories in the book. And it was also very, very well written like your book. Um, and so there was a lot of like stuff there that I thought was interesting. I, I'm wondering, have you written because this, this story that you're exploring in monument is close to you for sure but it's not like a personal history have you written poems that are personal history where you go back and do that sort of thing and has that informed your writing a monument in any way yeah like some of the earliest poems that I wrote were very much that like kind of um I was writing like pretty soon after I'd moved to Canada so just a lot of like the confused feelings I felt about immigrating and especially immigrating um in my late teens where yeah kind of grappling with all of these memories and especially in the I guess 21st century where there's still a lot of access to Karachi and and my friends back home and and just everything like that in a way where I, I think reading earlier uh stories of migration there's no internet there's no there's no easy way to reach back and connect with home um so that was what a lot of my early poems were about and, and kind of early chapbooks as well and I think I just I sort of felt like I'd written all I could about that mm. and I didn't really know where where else to go um I was also in university and I guess in in a bit of like an academic brain yeah yeah and, and that was where a bit of interest in like branching out a bit more um, sort of came in. 
Definitely. That that 100% makes sense. And I think it's one of those things too, what I think I'm trying to get at with that question, and I'll try and rephrase it into this one, is like, um, I, I know that you wrote poems like the ones that you described, because I've read a lot of them um, online or elsewhere, and, uh, and in chat books and so forth. But um, I'm wondering, I guess, like how writing that style of poem, exploring a personal history, a personal narrative, might have informed your writing of this particular book. That's a really good question. Um, and I think that that kind of goes back to the earliest drafts of this book that have been reshaped and reformed a lot more into what my writing voice is now. Um, but in those earlier drafts, like the writing style, I think was very similar to to what you've read of my older work. Um, there was, I think, maybe more like personal history in there. I was thinking a lot about, you know, kind of the border between Pakistan and India that, that was in that early work and is still very present in this book in which I talk about um, these imaginings at the Taj Mahal because I I've, I've, haven't been there and the idea of you know, getting a visa to India as a Pakistani is sometimes out of the question. Um, and thinking about like stories from my my grandparents and my grandmother especially that have worked their way into this book. Just just as a few examples, and I'm sure if I go through, I could poem by poem, I could pick out way more. Yeah, no, I I just I always find it interesting to see how people's writing uh, projects inform each other. I mean, if you even just look back to the question I asked about like multiple projects. I feel like it's there's always a little bit of stuff that carries over from project to project. And so I was wondering about how that might work in here. But um, I have some more questions for you, actually a lot more questions um, and a lot of stuff that I want to talk to you more about. But I'm realizing I have forgotten to ask you a question from my last episode's guest. Uh, and I should have done that a lot earlier, but we're going to, we're going to do it now. Um, so Manahil, <laughs> Anik McCaskill is wondering, as a poet, do you feel you are more guided by image or sound? Of course, this is a question that I saw an interaction on Twitter about already between you and Anik, but I wanted to see if we could get you to expand a little bit on it here. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it also, this question and my answer to it links a bit to um, yours, your previous question about how my earlier work influenced this book. Um, and yeah, so I, I mentioned like I'm, I'm also a visual artist. So I think my early work was very much influenced by image. Um, and that is, I feel at least very clear in my early chapbooks and poems. Um, but collaborating with other people and especially with with poets who are musicians or have musical backgrounds has made me think a lot more about sound and poetry and I feel like what monument is now um, and a lot of the editing I did was kind of editing it through the lens of sound. Um, the The image aspect was already there and I was thinking more about how yeah, how it would sound off the page. So sort of both, but one of them was a little more innate. The other one is in the process of being learned through just encounters with poets with different perspectives. 
that's a really good answer. I I feel um like my approach is somewhat similar and in that like as a writer when I'm sitting down and I'm putting a draft out or whatever um I feel like I'm thinking a lot more about image like a lot mm-hmm. more. Um and it's only in rereading the poems where I'll start to get a feel for how words work with one another um in in terms of their sound. And that especially comes, and it's very rare that I do this, but when I read a poem out loud to edit it, um, can be really helpful. And this is something I need to do more of. Um, But when I've done it before, I've noticed things in the poem that I I would never have noticed had I not read them aloud. So there's definitely an element to the editing where I feel like the sound becomes a more dominant aspect. Because I think once you have the image, you're not really going to mess around with an image in a poem too, too much unless it's really not functioning. But the sound is something that you can definitely tweak on a, on a smaller and larger scale after you have those images pinned down. That That's how I feel about it. And that's what yeah. I thought when I was reading your, your discussion with Anik as well on Twitter. Um, yeah. So I, I definitely agree with what you're saying. Um, we can, we can come back to this discussion and I hope we do because I'm enjoying it. Um, but, we're about halfway through the episode and I forgot to ask you the question until late. So now right after the question, Manahil, I need to ask you to read another poem for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, this one is called restart and is after the video game animal crossing. I found a rock that yielded white marble. It took me a thousand days to extract enough for your tomb. My shovel broke. I built a new shovel. My shovel broke again. Hours and hours later, my mausoleum went up right in the middle of my island. No one could enter. Meanwhile, the apple trees withered. Meanwhile, the carnations wilted. Streams abundant with fish. Fields steaming with bell crickets. The world did not wait for me. I could have told your husband this. The world might have been different. I might have ruffled through grass. I might have caught shards of shooting stars. Pause. Restart. Springtime's worth of cherry blossoms carpeting the island. This was another one of the poems that I really enjoyed in this book. And uh, a couple things stood out to me. Number one... Uh, as a person who has an Animal Crossing island, immediately related to that. Um, but number two, the line, the world did not wait for me, really stood out to me in this in this poem. Um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about how that line functions in terms of this poem, as well as the collection uh, as a larger project. Um, yeah, so this, well, Animal Crossing came out in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just, just as... Uh, lockdown, the first lockdown had, had begun and that was when I was like, sort of finalizing this manuscript to send to Brick and kind of going back to like moving between different projects um, I re-entered the world of this manuscript so to say and what that means for my creative process and the way my brain I guess sees the world is I was seeing bones and everything and everywhere so playing Animal Crossing and you know digging out ingots and thinking about being able to find marble in rocks and how that 
that might function in terms of this this creative project I had taking up so much space in my mind. Um, and the thing about a video game is you you can just restart it. And um, if, if you realize or feel like you've made a mistake. Um, and I think with, in terms of um, this manuscript, or sorry, this book now, it's not a manuscript anymore. <laughs> um, this book, like thinking about how much time like went into the building of the Taj Mahal and how much happened in the world and how much could have happened had all of this money and resources not gone into that building. Um, and generally, I think like the world, it doesn't, it kind of doesn't wait for you to keep, to keep going. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was really interesting too. I So I'm also a sucker for a poem that um, sort of weaves together history and a modern reference like Animal Crossing. So immediately was in, interested in this. Um, and as somebody who's tried to write about other video games before too in poems, um, yeah, it, it definitely struck a chord with me. Um, but okay, so we can, we can talk about a whole bunch of things here, but I want to propose another question that I had written down um, before we sat down to talk today. And that kind of ties into this. I mean, we're talking about, as the title of your book suggests, a monument in in this book. And that monument takes up space and resources, like you just said. I wanted to ask what the role of space and place is in this book. I think you mentioned earlier in the episode, correct me if I'm wrong, that you hadn't actually been to the Taj Mahal. So no. how do you, yeah. yeah, so so how do you put yourself in that space? How do you write about the space that you haven't been to? I mean, obviously with the internet, it's probably easier, but um, what what is kind of the role of space and place in here? And how do you explore these spaces without physically exploring these spaces? Uh, well, yeah, internet is very useful for, you know, kind of both pictures and research on just the technical aspects of the architecture. And then I think in, in the case of this book, specifically the, me not having visited it is also a significant part of the politics that make up a, a theme in the collection. So I think that in this case made it easier in a way. Um, I know I know writers like will definitely look for grants or ways to visit the places that they're writing about. Um, but yeah, in this in this case, that was a bit of an impossibility in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, I'm trying. So I'm trying to think of the other the other part of your questions, like space, the space part of it. Yeah. Um, so how how do you explore space and place without going there? Is kind of what you've what you've answered. But also, how do spaces and places factor into this this text? Yeah, like there's there's a lot of places mm -hmm. that you know that that come up throughout the collection. Places that are present through research, um, like a lot of the places in India. But then there's also places that I mean, I I have been to, like the Mughal sites in Lahore, um, Shah Jahan Masjid in Tatan Sindh, which is named after the emperor, and then sort of the landscape of Karachi um it's, it's it's a lot of like filling in the filling in the blanks 
and a lot of this conversation is taking place as uh, as a from a desire of me to fill in those blanks um so again it kind of in a weird way conveniently uh falls together properly that i haven't visited the Taj Mahal. yeah yeah i yeah. i think that's one of the things too that i think maybe when i drew that connection to leah horlick's collection earlier too i think leah had a grant and went to explore a lot of the spaces that she mm-hmm. talks about in her book but um you know, I, I, I think one of the things that was really powerful for me about Monument was the amount of unanswered questions. And those those come up in terms of space, those comes up in ter- those come up in terms of like relationships throughout the text. There's there's a lot of spaces where there's the unknown. And for some people, I think there's maybe as a writer at least, who has written I've I've done a few um, projects where I've I've written historical poems in the past, and I I've felt like I have to get everything perfect and right mm-hmm. and true to the stories. But uh, understanding that there are missing parts of narratives, and that those are just as integral and speak just as loudly to those narratives as the things that we know, it's one of the things that I thought was really powerful about Monument, um, and and just the way that you're able to pose questions that we might not have answers to but show the reader through those questions, just important how that lack of answer can be, was really cool to me. Um, this is one of those questions that's not really a question. It's just drifting into a compliment. So Manal Hill, I really like how you use questions in your book. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so, I'm, so, I'm so glad you you think that because yeah, the original draft in my Word doc was called Questions from Mumtaz Mahal. And I was sort of putting down all of these questions and thinking if I could... You know, if I could sit down and have a conversation with her, what would I ask? And exactly what you said um, about that that feeling like you need to get all of the historical information correct. Um, I had to relinquish that to actually finish this manuscript. Um, and it was, it was incredibly difficult to do. And, and that's, I think, why it was written in just these fractured bursts. Um, and... And a lot of the the questions that appeared in those early drafts have been reshaped and reformed, um, kind of for craft purposes, just so it's not repetitive, and and it kind of makes the yeah gives the poetry some makes it dynamic and changing. Um, and yeah, it was it's like working with Cecily Nicholson, who I mentioned earlier, is just amazing because having someone who wasn't immersed in all of the research and all of the facts and um, kind of talk about what was important about the book helped me uh, realize in a lot of ways what I needed to do to bring out that unknownness, um, bring out that speculation that, that the poems are founded on and how that's a strength. Yeah, I I think that's actually one of the things that when I first talked to you about Monument, which was a few months ago when I was in Toronto and we were talking a little bit about it, um, and you mentioned that Cecily was your editor for the book, I was so excited immediately because I've read a lot of Cecily's stuff. I've had the chance to speak with her multiple times, and I think it's just such a perfect pairing for this book because she's written 
books that are very similar, but you're right in the sense that like she might not have been immersed in the history of these texts, but bringing in her perspective to it, I think must have been a really interesting experience. Um, I, I wanted to ask too, what it was like working with an editor on a longer collection like this, because obviously you've put out chat books before and there is an editing process for chat books, but was it very different working on a full length with an editor? It absolutely was. And I don't know how much of that is because of where I felt this, like the manuscript draft was at when I submitted it, but I did a lot of rewriting and reordering and reforming um, off, off, yeah, off the texts um, in a way that I had not done for chapbooks before. Uh, Cecily, she just, you know, we had, we had meetings, she'd give me feedback and then I'd sit with that and just kind of run with it and think, what do I want this to look like? What do I want it to say? And again, just really letting go of, of the fear that I would get something wrong, mm. which is very difficult to do. And I still kind of have that fear that I have gotten things wrong and, you know, maybe stepped out of lines in, in places, but I'm also just really happy with the book. I, I, I do, I'm not an expert on the history at all that, that goes in behind this book, but I will say as somebody who reads a lot of poetry that it was very, very well written and very enjoyable and that I thought you did a really good job of, for what it's worth, I thought you did a really good job of, you know, leaving what you don't know as, as questions and allowing the power of those questions to be felt by the reader. I, as I said earlier, I think that was one of the most powerful things in this book was was the unknown and saying yeah, there are no answers to these questions, but the fact that we don't know those answers in a lot of, you know, in the context of like empire mm -hmm. or the narratives that are going on in here is actually really important that we don't know the answers to these things. I, I thought it was really powerful. So, and and I also wanted to jump on the the fact that you're saying, you know, like there is a feeling of like obligation to get things right. Mm -hmm. and And I think that certainly is amplified in a historical context as a writer, but I think in any context, you as a writer, not not you, Manahil, but like us as writers, um, are often trying to write something to which other people can relate. And to have that relatability requires, in a sense, uh, you getting it right, you, you getting the experience right and saying that, no, this is something that is shared by multiple people. Or in some cases, nobody shares this experience and that's why it's so valuable. Um, what you're saying about making sure you get it right is something I've been thinking a lot about lately in the context of writing about gender mm -hmm. um, as, as I've been exploring that more and more, because I feel like there are a lot of people who share my background and, and from the place from which I'm coming to gender um, and, and thinking through it, but there are also people who don't. And so getting it right, <laughs> just when you said that really stuck with me in the sense that like, I feel like when I'm writing about gender, when I'm writing about anything, really, I, I want to make sure I'm doing it justice, not just in my own experience, but that of others. And I guess what I want to ask you then is like, how did you find yourself letting go of that feeling? I know it's a different context in a historical text or, or a text that explores history. Um, but how did you find yourself letting go of that, that almost obligation to, to get things right, as you said? Yeah, I think having having someone who wasn't me reading the text and reading it closely and, mm -hmm. and you know, talking about it, that that in one way was a relief. Um, 
and and just really helped relinquish some of that sense of control and then I also in the back of my mind like I knew I knew the places where I felt things weren't working or I felt like I was holding back um and and almost that editorial process was a bit of like the permission that I needed and that's Mm. that's kind of the difference between sitting with um like draft that you're just you're just working on alone by yourself and then having it accepted by a press like working with an editor and just having other people involved and who have a stake um it just it, that that makes makes a difference and of course if you're before you submit a manuscript to a press like you you do have to figure out these ways and how to how to at least get it to the point where it would get accepted. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I guess it's it's a really good point. And I think this is something that I found not as somebody who's published a full-length collection, because that's not who I am, um, but as somebody who has had the chance to have their work read by other writers um, and to be in community with other writers, I feel like it's so valuable to have somebody else mm-hmm. say, yeah, you got this part right. And it's almost even more valuable, although a little bit discouraging at times, to have somebody say, no, this part you got completely wrong. Um, this, yeah. <laughs> this needs to go or whatever. And that's a part of it too. Um, but I think what what you're referring to there, or what at least I pull out of it is like, as you were answering that question, I had flashbacks to the probably 25 times in the past two months where I've been at a cafe looking at the same manuscript and going, I don't know what to change here. Like I, I've already done so much with this poem or, you know, with these sets of poems where I'm like, I don't know what else I could do. I, I don't know what's left. So yeah, having and, another set of eyes is so valuable, you know? And yeah, at a point, like just an outside editor is amazing. And I think the issue there is, you know, you can kind of be like, oh, well, I think, you know, you should, you should hire an editor, but that's, you know, expensive Yeah. to do. And not everyone has the means to do that. Um, a couple of Christmases ago, my friend got me, um, like a, a manuscript uh, evaluation with oh, an wow. editor. So it wasn't like an super super in-depth but the editor would read your manuscript and write like a one to two page note on it which is amazing and like I was able to send a manuscript that similarly goes like I I know it's not where I want it to be but I I'm struggling with trying to figure out what needs to be changed and and I did that and it it just like clicked the pieces into place hmm I what a thoughtful gift for a writer yeah. a manuscript consult that's also though that's like low-key <laughs> it could be taken the wrong way by the wrong person I think of like your writing needs work here's a <laughs> here's like a consultation but I would love that I think if any of my family are somehow listening to this podcast which I find unlikely uh you know hit me up at Christmas get me a manuscript consultation I would love that what a great well, gift. yeah and it's it's, uh, never, <laughs> it's never a state comment on oh I think you're a bad writer it's this is something that's beneficial to all writers, especially when you're putting something longer than a poem together. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good point. I, I love that idea. Um, okay, we, we've only got a little bit left. I seem to be forgetting features of the show until the very last second that I can implement them. But Manahil, before we go, I need two things from you. The first thing being a question for my next episode's guest. Uh, yeah, so... 
the question I have, I'm trying to articulate it in, in a not convoluted way. Um, so I think pretty much all the guests that come on your on your show have a book or a chapbook out. And mm. more so with a book, less so with a chapbook, but at the time it's published, there's a fair there's quite a bit of time that elapses from the moment you put that manuscript together to when it's published out in the world in a more permanent form. Um, and I want to ask, if you wrote the collection that that has been published today, at this moment in time, as the person that you are, how would it be different? Or how would it not be different? Whoa, that's a good question. Okay, I'm excited to talk about this. Manahil, you know I do the mean thing where I turn it yes. around and ask somebody. So tell me about it. If you were to rewrite your manuscript, your collection right now, would it be the same thing? No, and I. this is something I was thinking about a lot when I was editing it, when I was revising it, and when like it reached those final proof forms. And I, In editing, it, one of the difficult parts was editing what I consider to be my older writing voice, and I got frustrated with that a lot of times. And I was just thinking, if I wrote this now, like I wouldn't have to do that. But I also, I also just think, because when I was writing these poems, I wasn't thinking about publishing them in any kind of book or collecting them in this form, and that gave me a certain amount of freedom. I wasn't censoring myself as much. If I tried to write this now, I would just have a lot more pressure on myself and scrutiny on myself off. Um, yeah, like, how is this going to be, be read? Um, mm -hmm. which, which I do have. But at least I didn't have that as much when I was trying to produce the the bulk of the material, which was very difficult to do, and I think would be even harder to do. Yeah, and I, I imagine it's very much an amplified experience with a full-length collection as opposed to a chapbook, because when I, when I put out my two chapbooks, I had a similar feeling of like, what if, you know, I haven't touched these poems for months by the time they go to press and, and everything, and like, you're like well what if people think this is what I think good writing is now even though you know this is what I thought good writing was nine months ago maybe that's not my idea of it anymore and and I I struggle with that with my chat book so I can only imagine with a full-length book where that process is elongated and there feels like there's maybe a little bit more weight on these texts um it, it must be an amplified feeling um I will say the best advice I got on this and I've shared this on the show before but I'll share it again was from my grandmother who actually passed away in the past couple months. So it's funny that I'm bringing her, her advice back, but uh, this sticks with me very much. She said, you know, if you felt like that was good writing at some point, if you submitted it to a press and you went, that's my best work, somebody out there is going to resonate with what you're writing mm -hmm. and, and, and resonate with the way that it's written and say, no, I'm in the same mindset as Andrew was nine months ago when he wrote these poems. Um, and, you know, these really stick with yeah. me. So there's still a lot of value to that writing. And it's easy as a writer, I think. I don't know. Again, probably me projecting. But I definitely look back at poems I wrote even like a month ago, not even that long ago. And I'll be like, that's not good writing. That doesn't represent what I want my writing to be. Um, yeah. It's and, and so easy yeah. to think that. And I think, you know, yeah. to, to like my question about trying to think if I could write the same thing. 
could I write it so much better? But then mm. also, yeah, also just reflecting on like poems come out of a certain context, like they come out of the headspace of, of where you are. You know, like the poem about Animal Crossing that I wrote, that I wrote like while I was playing it. That's something that wouldn't, you know, exist if I were writing this book now. There would be mm-hmm. there would be other things that I'd be reflecting on and I can't really say for sure if it would be better or worse, but it certainly wouldn't be monument. Right. That's a really good way of putting it. I, I, I love that that point of it. It might not be better, it might not be worse, but it wouldn't be the same. Um that's that's a really good way of thinking of it. And it's true. I think you're right. Like these poems in this book and in any book arise from a very specific context. Um and often it's hard to know whether that context will be useful or not when you're writing the poem for the first time. Um, but yeah, it's, it's such a good way of putting it. Um, maybe we will close there. And the last thing I need from you, Manahil, is, is another poem. Uh, yeah, I have a, a short little one that is um, from a section towards the end of the book called Unravel. That elusive freedom thinking back to life's other plans, to learn ocean salt or scale mountains in the north. And how does the spirit free itself? If you are still here, witnessing your body encased, what would you need to untether? Another one that I really enjoyed. Um, and I really enjoyed talking with you today. Manahil, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I was so excited to chat with you again, especially in the context of this new book. Uh, again, for the listener, it's called Monument. It's out now with Brick. You need to go get it. All right. A lot of times I recommend books on this show and I'm like, yeah, it's pretty good. You should go check it. No, no, no. You need to go get Monument. This is a really good book. Um, it's also one of my favorite covers, too, of a book. We didn't talk about that at all. But I love the cover and I love the drawings on the inside. And there's just a lot here. So go check it out. Um, Manal Hill, thanks again for your time today. Yeah, thank you so much. This is so much fun. There you have it, folks. That was me chatting with Manahil Banduquala. I hope you enjoyed it. I, I really enjoyed this interview. I've been thinking about it in what has admittedly been a shorter time than usual between recording and editing, um, just a couple days here. But I've been thinking a lot about some of the things that Manahil said, especially around Unique's question um, regarding image and sound in poetry. And it's making me think a lot more about how I need to integrate sound into my work. Um, so maybe something to think through for others as well. I don't know. Um, but I really appreciate your time, Manahil, if you're listening back to this, and I hope you'll come back to complete the hat trick and do a third appearance at some point. Um, if you enjoyed the show, folks, as I mentioned at the top, there's 70 other episodes. This is 71, so you can go back and check out the others. Um, there's plenty of content moving forward, too. I've got some good guests pinned down and some more book reviews to come out, so there will be lots coming up in the next little bit, which means it's worth your time to subscribe. And you can also rate and review the show. Um, That helps other people who don't know the poets that I'm talking to find them in their work, which is, as you know, the ultimate goal of what I'm doing here. So please, please, please leave reviews, rate the show. It helps a bunch. Even if there's only a couple, it means the world Um, to me and also to anybody who's looking for a new podcast. They can check that out. Um, So it's kind of helpful. Okay, I don't have much else to say. 
Um, so I'm just going to sign off. But I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope you'll check out Monument. Again, the link to buy it is down below. You can also go to Manal Hill's website down below. There's lots of good stuff to check out in the description for today's episode. So please, please do. I will see you in a month or so for another interview and in probably a couple weeks for a review. Until then, my name's Andrew French. I'm on Twitter at TheAndrewFrench, and this, of course, has been Page Fright. <laughs>